Before we get started into our message this morning, we want to have uh, a season of prayer. And so I invite all who can see and hear me, let's bow our heads and, and let's come before our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the wonderful blessings that you continually uh, pour out upon us. Uh, we are so unworthy of such things, but uh, it's because of your love towards us uh, that you take care of us, and we are so very thankful. We thank you for Jesus, for his life and death for us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We ask for that spirit now. We thank you for the things that you provide for us. We are very thankful for the heavenly angels that you send to walk with us and help to guide us in our way and protect us from the evil one. And uh, Lord, we are so very, very thankful that we have the opportunity to share the love of Jesus with those around us and to have a home on a new earth as you've promised in your holy word. I pray that you'll be with those who couldn't be with us today, be with those who are traveling to houses of praise and worship. Uh, may they have travel mercies. I, I pray also that you give me the words to speak as we take another look here at the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. I pray for enlightenment. Uh, prepare our hearts for truth. And uh, may we have a love for that truth. And please, Lord, forgive us for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' precious name, for he's worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. <clears throat> we are in the series that is entitled The Sin Issue. We've been taking a look at what sin really is and, and, a, and a lot of its aspects. In order to be an overcomer of sin, we, we better define what it is or see what the definition of it is and the aspects of it. Because we don't want to be deceived, do we, friends? We want to overcome these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we find, and, and in fact, I've entitled this message, All These Things. We've been looking at the three temptations that uh, Satan brought to Jesus there in the wilderness. And I've entitled this particular message, All These Things. All these things. Well, friends, there is great encouragement for us. We see all the evil around. We, we see that the devil is very powerful. But there is great encouragement found in God's word for those who believe. Isn't that true? You know, for those who do not believe, there will be great discouragement. And ultimately great disappointment. But why is it that those who believe God's word have such encouragement. Because by knowing and loving God's word, they testify that they know and they love Jesus. And in him is true peace and there is hope, isn't there? And how do we know if we know Jesus? This is very interesting. It's just, this question isn't a new question. In fact, uh, the Apostle John dealt with this question. How do we know if we know Jesus? Is it just by professing his name, or is there something else? The Apostle John, again, he gives an answer to this. It's found in the first, his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 6. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
and hereby we do know that we know Him, here's the answer, if we keep His commandments. Isn't that remarkable? Verse 4, He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth His word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. That's how we know. He that saith he abideth in him ought him also so to walk, even as he walked. So John here, he acknowledges, you see, the possibility of a sincere Christian committing a transgression, a a sin, or possibly even iniquity. And he does this not to condone sin, but to introduce the one who can save him from sin into which you know, he may have fallen. And it is because he is still righteous after having been tempted in all points like as we are that Christ is fitted, you see, to be our high priest and to be our advocate here as John says. So there is hope for all who come to Jesus. This is what John is saying to us. Had Jesus sinned, well, he could not have stood before the Father. And had he not experienced temptation, he could not have been our true representative. Now, John said there something interesting. He said that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. The Greek word meaning that he is the means of appeasing God for our missing his mark of righteousness. You know, in pagan usage, a propitiation was a gift or a sacrifice that was intended to appease the wrath of a god and to render him friendly or forgiving. You remember some of the old movies, they would take the virgin up to the mount, up the mountain to the top of the volcano and throw her into the volcano in an effort to appease this angry God. That's what uh, the pagans mean by propitiation. But our God, the Creator God, has no need to be appeased or to be reconciled to us. For the Bible says that He loves men even while they are sinners. But it is we who stand in need of being reconciled to God, isn't it? The Greek construction uh, here by John, it emphasizes that Christ is himself the propitiation as well as the propitiatory. In other words, he is both the priest and the victim. And friends, that's a mystery we just cannot completely fathom. Now, it might be obvious to say, but if if there were no sin, no falling short of the mark, there would be no need for propitiation. But John acknowledges that even Christians have sinned and offers that assurance that Jesus Christ the righteous has taken care of that. He's taken care of that sin by dying in our place. He offers His own blood for the removal of our sins. 
What incredible love for guilty man. Incredible love. So again, I ask, how do we know that we know Jesus? Well, as John's saying, it's a life conformed to the will of God. That's the only sure evidence that a person knows God. They have the fruits of obedience. The fruits of servanthood to God. And I'll get to more of that in a little bit. You know, the claim that knowledge alone is of value, you know, a mental assent, uh, in that conduct, the way you behave, is of no particular importance in, in determining a man's standing with God, you know, that's of pagan origins. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. God never has taught that. The apostles declare that it's not the hearers of the word who are justified, they say it's the doers of the word that are justified. Jesus even said that himself. But John says that it is those who keep the commandments of God who are the ones that know God. The verb translated keep is that Greek word terio. It expresses the idea of, of keeping close watch. And used here, it entails an inner purpose that results in conforming our acts with the will of God as expressed in his commandments. John uses the phrase, and if you've read any of his epistles, the gospel and his epistles, he uses the phrase, keep my commandments, and he says, keep my words, and similar phrases many times in all of his writings. And this is what he's trying to get across, you see. So John tells us that we can indeed walk as Jesus walked. In his earthly life, Jesus left a perfect example for all to follow. And promises that we can follow his example perfectly. And then John insists that he who claims to abide in Christ, this is what he's saying, should give daily evidence that he is emulating the Savior by living a righteous life as he did. The life must tally with the profession. You know, talk the talk and walk the walk. And this is at the heart of how we are to deal with temptations and how we are to have and can have victory over trials. And so we've been studying how Jesus walked when confronted with the temptations of the, the great deceiver so we may learn to do likewise when we're tempted, when we have trials. And so that's what we want to do here. Please turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew for we're going to look again at Christ's example in his battle with the devil's temptations in the wilderness. And by the way, this wasn't the only time that the devil came to Jesus to tempt him. But this was the great battle. This was the weakest point in Christ's life. Now we've studied the first and the second of these three great temptations, and now we want to take a close look at the, the third temptation that the devil brought against Jesus. But let's go to Matthew 4. Let's read from the beginning there. Then was, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 
Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, again trying to raise doubt, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And here we come to the third one. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him, that is, Christ. So though, though he was very weak and famished, uh, there are Bible commentators who say he looked virtually like a walking skeleton. That's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, when I, when I hear things like that, I picture scenes that I've seen of World War II in those concentration camps. So think about that. Here Jesus is. He's very weak. He's famished. Yet he was victorious in the first and second temptations. And now Satan manifests himself to Jesus in his true character. Remember, he came to him as if he was an angel of light sent from the Father in heaven, testing Jesus to, to, to in a way he put it, to test his faith. If thou be the Son of God, right? But the devil comes, and he doesn't come, he doesn't appear as a hideous monster with cloven feet, a pitchfork, and bat's wings. You know, you see that a lot today, especially you know around Halloween and such. In fact, the devil likes to be depicted that way. It makes it easier for him to deceive people when he comes as an angel of light. But he comes, he's a, he's a mighty angel. This is how he comes, though he's a fallen angel. He boasts himself the leader of rebellion and the God of this world. And what was the offer he made to Christ? He comes and he says again, the devil takes him up to an exceeding high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of, of the world and the glory of them. And then he says to him, all these things I, I'll give to you. I'll give them to you if thou will fall down and worship me. Now, inspiration hasn't revealed the sight uh, of this third temptation. I've read some uh, commentators, they suggest that it was Mount Nebo. Um, you know, Mount Nebo is about 2,700 foot high. And it was the place where Moses viewed, remember, the, the entire promised land. And we're told that in vision, Moses also saw the plan of salvation down through the ages as he was looking out through here. And in fact, remember, Moses didn't go into the promised land. So I think Satan was doing the same uh, with Jesus in this third temptation by showing him a panoramic view of the glories of the world. So it makes sense to me, you know, that it might be Mount Nebo. But we have no record, really, where this took place. But we do know that it was real. 
And we do know that it did take place because the Bible says that it did take place. Now it's interesting that here Matthew says that the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. But Luke says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 5, he notes that this occurred in a moment of time. That's rather remarkable, isn't it? Now, I don't know how this is done. I mean, this is a, may I say, technology that we have no idea about. So it's really rather futile to speculate as to how Satan uh, may be able to present before Jesus this, this panorama that passed before his eyes. But it was another show of supernatural power with the hope of impressing Christ is, is, uh, is what I think, and I'm pretty sure about that. He's trying to impress Jesus. And like I said, Satan no longer was trying to show himself as an angel from the Father in heaven, but he stood before Christ in his assumed role of the prince of this world. Of course, all the traces of evil were hidden during this performance. I mean, you're not going to try to sell somebody uh, the glory of the world and show him all the bad things of the world, are you? And that's what Satan does with us when he tempts us. He, he only presents the good things, you know, the darling, delicious things before us. Satan effectively hid, you see, the seamy side of his kingdom, and he presented only the, the dazzling glories of, of human prowess. And it is true, religiously and politically, Satan effectively exercised the control over the affairs of the world. But, friends, when he said all these things, he was speaking about stolen property. <laughs> but so long as they were in his hands, Satan proposed to trade with them to his own advantage. He claimed them as his own. Christ was actually the true owner, and his ownership was based on the fact that he had made all things, right? John 1, verse 3. And contrary to what many ministers teach, Jesus had never abdicated his rights to this earth. That has never happened. But Satan knew that Jesus had come to contest his claim, you see, and now offered to surrender it without a conflict, but on condition. Satan's control of the human race was not complete. There were still some who had not yielded allegiance to him. And he realized the challenge implied in the sinlessness of Christ. So he offered Jesus the role of political Messiah. A role in which the Jewish nation would have accepted him. After all, they were looking for a Messiah that would remove Rome and sit on the seat of David as king of this world. They were looking for a powerful political leader. This is why they were so impressed with the, the miracles that Jesus performed. This is why the zealots were so impressed and tried to usher him onto the throne of David. They knew that someone with such power could mightily defeat Rome. So they were looking for a powerful political leader. Now, why would they have accepted Jesus as a political Messiah? Have you ever thought about that? 
Well, let's think about that. The Jewish nation, they were no longer, or they were very, on the very outskirts of being God's church, which means they had become a church-state organization. The fact that they wanted Jesus put to death clearly shows whose character that they were reflecting. And it is a testimony, I believe, to the long-suffering and love of our Father in Heaven that He still held out mercy and forgiveness for another three and a half years after they killed His Son. Now that sure doesn't sound like a tyrant God to me, does it to you? <coughs> you see, friends, Satan has to garner worship by connecting his church with the world. Or let's say connecting his church to the state. And this is the only way he can achieve getting the whole world to wander after the beast. <laughs> See? He has to use a means of the people to force people to worship him. And that's what the three angels' messages of, of Revelation 14 warns us about. And it will work on the majority of this world, for unless we are born of the Holy Spirit, friends, each of us will strive for what we want instead of what is best for another. We esteem ourselves, you see, better than others. We each really want to be king of the world and to rule over others, and that is the character of Satan, see? We've seen this as his motive and character throughout human history in the rise and the fall of, of uh, the, the kingdoms of the world, the very kingdoms that Satan is using in an attempt to lure Jesus to fall for this third temptation. I'll give you all these things, he said. And that's really what ex actually made the United States of America so unique and powerful compared to all other kingdoms of history. That is the difference between this country and all others before it. This country was not based upon a church-state organization, but upon religious liberty, where men can worship according to the dictates of their conscience. This is diametrically opposed to Satan's form of government, and it explains why this country has been so blessed by God. And this is why Satan's church on earth hates this country so much and has been working behind the scenes to overthrow it for so long. And it, it's working, these attacks, as we can see more and more each day. And soon this great country will speak as a dragon, just as God said it would there in Revelation 13. Did you notice, too, in this third temptation of Christ there, that Satan made it appear that Jesus was getting something for practically nothing. <laughs> All these things, he says, for the paltry price of prostrating himself once before the one who posed as the rightful owner. It was as if Satan said, you came to earn title to this world, did you not? Accept it as a gift from me. Power and honor may be yours for the taking. And in return, all Satan asked was a transfer of personal allegiance from the Father to himself by bowing down. All you have to do, Jesus, is bow down. You know, in Oriental lands, even today, 
prostration is the sign of absolute submission. And this is what Satan wanted from Jesus. He wanted absolute submission. So Satan is attempting, by this third temptation, among other things, to lure Jesus into accepting his church-state religion over the government of the Father in heaven. Satan wants Jesus to accept his form of government. Jesus will get to be the head like the Pope is the head. But he would get his power and authority from the dragon instead of the Father, like the Pope does, you see. Satan was wanting Jesus to be his Pope, you could say. In refusing to comply with Satan's proposal, Christ disavowed any unholy alliance between church and state. And if you noticed in Christ's ministry, regardless of what many preachers are telling you, especially in this election year here in this country, Christ refused to interfere with the nations of his time consistently and completely. He didn't deal with politics. He never went there. His only advice on matters of church-state relations was uh, what he said in Matthew 22. He said, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. That's the only thing he had to say about it. Let me ask you this. Did any of this supernatural exhibition by Satan really tempt Jesus? Was it really appealing to his humanity? Well, let me ask you this. Is it not our nature to look for the easy way out? You know, it's like electricity. It finds the path of least resistance, and that's kind of what we like to do, you know. But was the humanity of Jesus any different than ours? Romans 8 and verse 3 says that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in Hebrews 4.15, it says that he was tempted in all points like unto us. This last temptation was also the most alluring of the three that Satan brought. You see, he was saving his best temptation for last. And it's because, friends, Jesus knew what lay before him. That it was such a powerful temptation. He knew that only sorrow and grief and death lay before him. Isaiah tells us about this. And Jesus knew what Isaiah had said much more than we do. Right? In Isaiah 53. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Was Jesus familiar with Isaiah 53? Absolutely he was. So don't ever think that it wasn't a battle for the Savior in overcoming this temptation that Satan brought to him. He was offering him what appeared to be, see, the easy way out. There will be no suffering, see. You don't have to die for these people. You can rule these people. In fact, Jesus had that same battle with his humanity there in Gethsemane when he asked the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's his humanity saying, I want an easy way out. I can't go through with this. But his mission to save that which was lost could be fulfilled only through suffering. See, Now Satan offers to yield up the power he had usurped and Jesus could deliver himself from that dreadful future just by acknowledging the supremacy of Satan. But to do this would give Satan the victory in the great controversy. Remember that it was in seeking to exalt himself above the Son of God that Satan had sinned in heaven. And should Satan prevail now, it would be the triumph of that rebellion. By the way, when Satan said to Christ, the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it, he actually only he only stated part of the truth, which is what he does. Remember, that's what he did in the second temptation he brought against Jesus. Satan, in his pride and arrogance, had declared himself to be the rightful and permanent ruler of the world. The possessor of all its riches and glory, claiming homage of all who lived in it, as if he had created the world and all the things that are in it. Is Satan really the ruler of this world? Satan's control of the earth actually was wrested from Adam, but friends, Adam was the representative of the Creator. Adam was not an independent ruler. Adam didn't own the earth. The earth is God's. And the Bible tells us that he has committed all things to his son. When Adam betrayed his rule into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. Daniel 4 and verse 17 says, The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And we know that Satan can exercise his authority only as God permits it. <laughs> See? So having made his boldest move in this third temptation, Satan had nothing more to offer. Did he? I mean, he was going to give him everything. 
And what was the reaction of Jesus to Satan's offer? What was his reaction when Satan offered him to give him all these things? Let's look back at Matthew 4 and verse 10. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And so the climax had been reached. Satan had unmasked himself and had appeared in his true role, and he was thoroughly rejected. In fact, you know, when God tells Satan to do something, he immediately must obey. Did you realize that? Let me share this with you from the book Confrontation, page 54. Satan had asked Christ to give him evidence that he was the Son of God, and he had in this instance the proof he had asked. He said, if thou be the Son of God, and he said, get thee hence, Satan, and Satan had to go. That proved he was the Son of God. It goes on and says, at the divine command of Christ, he was compelled to obey. He was repulsed and silenced. He had no power to withstand the peremptory dismissal. He was compelled without another word instantly to desist and leave the world's Redeemer. Immediately. And here, the prince of the world came to Christ and, and found nothing in him that responded, see? Even in the very least degree, he never responded to temptation. Any philosophy, friends, any philosophy of life that offers us all these things, and heaven too, is part and parcel of the devil's doctrine. That's where it originates. So don't be deceived by it. Satan cannot offer anything of real substance that lasts. And yet it is amazing to me that anyone would trust such a known liar and murderer. <laughs> it's rather remarkable. But it was a temptation. It was a temptation. The eye of Jesus for a moment rested upon the glories that were presented before him. But he turned away. And he refused to look upon the spectacle. He would not endanger his steadfast integrity by trifling with temptations like Eve had done. Every door, every door to the soul was shut to this rebel. And friends, Jesus reacted just as we're to react. This is a lesson for us, beloved. Jesus is giving us an example here by not dwelling upon a temptation. Because that's where the seed is. If you dwell upon it, it may sprout. That's <laughs> what James uh, alludes to here in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when he says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We must not dwell upon uh, the temptations of Satan, but answer them as Jesus did with it is written. And that will repel the devil's advances. Now what is at the heart of this third temptation? We, we looked at the first temptation. We've looked at the second temptation. Now we're on this 
uh, at this time looking at the third temptation. What is at the heart of this third temptation? The prince of this world had come to, to Christ offering to satisfy the cravings of human desire. Remember, with three temptations. And they were the first one. At its foundation, that temptation had to do with appetite, didn't it? The material creature comforts and necessities. The second temptation had to do with presumption. You know, the privilege of doing as one pleases and of enjoying the privilege of disobedience without accepting any of the responsibilities. Boy, do we see that today, don't we? Well, we see both of them. People have given in to these temptations. This third one, this third temptation had to do with ambition for pride, popularity, power, and authority over other men. You know, in, spe in fact, it's a little bit more than that. In speaking about this temptation, E.J. Wagner says this. He was writing about it. He says, The crowning temptation was ambition, and more than ambition. Even the very same ambition that caused the fall of the angels. Showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, the devil said, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. For much less than that, many a man has sold himself to the devil to have all the earth. Ambition. And more than ambition, he says. That grabbed my attention. Ambition, but more than ambition. That is interesting, and that is true. The Apostle John explains it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Notice what he says. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The devil came to Jesus and he offered to give him the world. But John says here, love not the world. Well, what does it mean to love the world? Please notice that there are two forms of love that are being spoken of here by John. Love for the world and the love of the Father. Now, John says, love not the world. He says, love not the world. The Greek word for love that John used here is akapeo. And it means to entertain, to be fond of, to love dearly, to be well-pleased with, to be contented at or with a thing. That's what it means. But John goes on to say, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He used a different Greek word for this love of the Father. The Greek word for love used here to describe the love of the Father. It's similar, it's similar but different than the word to love the world. It is agapeia, which means brotherly love, affection, goodwill, charity, benevolence. John is essentially saying this. He's saying, 
Do not love dearly or entertain the world. Neither be well pleased with or contented with the things that are in the world. If anyone loves dearly or entertains the world, the charity and benevolence of the Father is not in him. It's a matter of what's your motivation, see. John goes on to define what the love of the world consists of in the next verse. He said, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, did you notice how these three descriptions actually parallel the three temptations that were brought against Christ? The lust of the flesh, that's appetite. The lust of the eyes, that is presumption. You know, seeing yourself in a better light than you really are, in God's view. And the pride of life, that is ambition, or as John says, the love of the world. Now, please pay close attention to me here. I'm going to share with you some definitions, and sometimes that can get kind of, people's eyes might glaze over a little bit, but please <laughs> pay attention uh, and trust me, I think what we will see when I'm finished is very enlightening. And it will give us a better idea, actually, of the temptation G Jesus was dealing with, all the, the weight behind that temptation. In fact, that all, all of us deal with. The closest equivalent English word in describing what it means to love the world, as John is describing is the word ambition. That's why Wagner used it. It was the closest to English that he could find, ambition. And it signifies literally a going about as of a candidate soliciting votes. The act of going about to solicit or obtain an office or other object of desire. A desire for some object that confers distinction. Desire to distinguish oneself from other men and or desirous of obtaining power, superiority, or distinction. And as Wagner said, he said ambition, but more than ambition. Another expression that corresponds to this idea of ambition, as John has said in verse 16, is the pride of life. The word used here to express the thought of life is a form of the Greek word bios. You know, we get biology and those uh, words from this, this word bios. But it's a, it's a form of the Greek word bios. And it signifies not animal life, not the breath of life, not spiritual life, not even life itself. The life which comes from God. You know, life itself. But it signifies the life which we live, the life led, the manner of life, the course of life. You understand? The word used to express the thought of pride is the Greek word alazoneia, meaning the character of an alazon. Well, Pastor Joel, what's an alazon? <laughs> well, that's the question I had. Well, what's an alazon? An alazon is literally this. It's a wanderer about the country, a false pretender, 
an imposter, a quack, a swaggering, boastful braggart, and by implication, uh, ostentation, arrogance, pride. It's the same word that is used in 1 Timothy 3.6 when he says, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. One more word that corresponds to this ambition and pride of life is self-exaltation or self-anchorandizement. The Latin word that corresponds to, to the Greek word used to express pride of life is gloriosus. And it expresses the idea of worldly glory. Now, isn't that interesting? In light of these definitions, I think it's easier, I think it's easier, to see the real nature of the temptation that Satan brought against Jesus when he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and says, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And then, friends, all the fires of ambition, of worldly glory that were ever manifested in human flesh, you know, in Alexander the Great, in Caesar, in Napoleon, Hitler, and all the like, poured like a driving storm upon the humanity of Christ to entice him, you see. to entice him to the desire of that which was before him, to be lifted up above every man, as high as was that mountain that Satan had taken him to. But by the Spirit of God, and friends, it was only by the Spirit of God, Jesus knew that none of all that glory which he saw was of the Father. But all of it was of the world. He knew that it was only a false, fleeting glory. He knew that true glory lies not in the pride of life, not in ambition, not in self-exaltation, but in self-emptying, self-renunciation, in loving others and in esteeming others better than oneself. And therefore he promptly answered, Get thee hence, Satan, for it's written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The Bible shows us that this temptation reveals the fact, friends, that worldly glory, the glory of the kingdoms of this world, the glory of rulership, of overlordship, the glory of position, of office, all this or any of it can be had only by idolatry, only by the worship of the God of this world. And I'm talking strictly about the pride of life, the worldly ambition, more than ambition as Wagner puts it, and self-exaltation that John was describing. Christianity. The true keeping of the commandments of God is not rulership, but service. 
the liberty wherewith Christ makes men free, the liberty in which Christians stand fast is the liberty by love to serve one another. As Paul states in Galatians 5, verses 13 to 14, For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And to love our neighbor as ourselves is to do good to him always, in all things, by any righteous means. As Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And when in this same pride of life, this spirit of ambition, the disciples were striving among themselves as to who should be the greatest or who should be counted the greatest, Jesus replied to them when he said in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, he said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Hear me now, beloved. Hear me now. All selfish desire for place or for position, all exercise of dominion or of authority in place or position, all national distinctions, all racial distinctions, all aristocratic distinctions, all class distinctions, all place or official distinctions are only of the pride of life and are thus not of the Father but of the world. And they are idolatry. They are all vanity, which is only idolatry. The greatest curse that has ever come upon the earth since the original curse itself has been and is in men, whether in the world or in the church, occupying places of authority and exercising authority who have no true authority. Now, I want to be careful what I say here because I'm talking now about a system, the devil's system. I'm not talking about people. I'm not talking about uh, uh, one's faith, etc. I'm talking about a system of worship here. What has been the greatest curse that all history has known among men in the world as they have existed in nations or organizations? What organization has been the most oppressive and the most far-reaching in its oppression? Well, I think every Bible and prophecy student can answer that in a moment. Is it not the, the devil's representative? His representative church on this earth. A 
It's the papacy. And what is the papacy? It is summed up in having a man in place of authority who has no true authority. It is simply a man having seized authority over men and the means of enforcing it and demanding respect and subjection to that authority who yet has no authority at all except that which he has seized by unlawful means. And that is the church-state organization that is the representative of Satan. That's Satan's form of government. In the scripture description that Paul lays out in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4 is that he opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And friends, what I want to tell you is that this is the extremity to which men can possibly go in the violation of the commandments of God. And yet it is all simply the desire for place, for position, and to exercise authority that they really don't have in the grand scope of creation. And this is the third temptation that Satan brought upon Jesus. As some may say, the papacy has great authority. Yes, as men see it, they do. But the papacy has no true authority because it has no eternal truth. Eternal truth is the only real source of authority. And he who has eternal truth has authority. And he who has the most eternal truth has the most authority. And this is why it is that Jesus had all authority in heaven and in earth. He had all authority because he had all the eternal truth. He is the eternal truth itself. Jesus said, all authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those two sentences belong together. They explain each other. Only eternal truth shows the way and has life. The papacy shows the way to death as it has no eternal truth, therefore no life. And yet Jesus held no earthly position, did he? He occupied no place or position when he was here, did he? And that simply expresses, friends, the eternal truth that position never gives true authority. In the church and work of God, position never gives authority to anyone. Now, position entails responsibility, but never gives authority. As a pastor, I am called to more responsibility to feed the flock and not to rule over the flock. My position has responsibility, but it doesn't give me authority. Only eternal truth does that. Now listen closely. The Bible says that Jesus taught as one having authority. And that authority was readily recognized by those who heard his teaching. This was because the authority was in what he taught. The authority was in the eternal truth that he had. His word had power in itself because it had authority in itself. Being truth 
And that is because its source was God, who is all truth. And whosoever in the world has the eternal truth as it is in Jesus, in that very heart possession, and it has to be heart possession, in that very heart possession of eternal truth has authority in heaven and on earth. Not to exercise authority over others, but to speak with authority as Jesus did. There is power and authority in the word of God, the eternal truth of God itself, that was put there by the only one who has authority to do so, and he is eternal truth itself. We just read from Matthew 7 about this. The princes of the Gentiles exercise authority. Who are the Gentiles? They are the godless ones who, whether knowingly or unknowingly, follow Satan. The unconverted. The godless. The princes of the Gentiles exercise authority. Jesus said, but it shall not be so among you. And God does give authority, but he gives it in the eternal truth which he gives. And he who receives the eternal truth of God as it is in Jesus, in that eternal truth receives authority. The authority which he has is in the truth which he has, in the message which he bears to the glory of God. You see, friends, Jesus spoke with authority and anyone who has the eternal truth of God written in his mind and heart will do the same. They will speak with authority because they are the words of God. Satan, on the other hand, had no authority because he does not have eternal truth. And the eternal truth is that all the law is fulfilled in one word, as Paul says. Even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Where then is the true position of greatness? Here's the answer. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Satan wasn't offering Christ true greatness. He doesn't have it to give. The greatest position is that of a servant. And the greatest work is that of service. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. In Christ... And the way of Christ is the keeping of the commandments of God. For this is true service. This is true ministry. That's what John was trying to tell us. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, we will serve as he served. In Satan and in the way of Satan is the breaking of the commandments of God. For this is true selfishness. This is ambition or more than ambition as Wagner put it. Each is reflected by their church members. The church of Christ will be commandment keepers, those who serve God and others. 
The church of Satan will be commandment breakers. Those who serve Satan by serving themselves above all others. And friends, this is what temptations are all about. When you look at the big picture. It's to see whose disciple is whose. And if we continue to fail and not draw upon our source of strength found in Jesus, it will be very clear to all creation who we have chosen to follow. The Son of God, in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, Paul says. And if we but come to Him in faith, if we choose to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, He will, by His grace, enable us thus to walk. if we will but submit ourselves to God, we too may resist the devil and he will flee from us. He has to. Because when you have Christ inside, you will speak with authority. And when you speak with authority and say, get away, Satan, he has to obey. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Power. Power over the devil. Power over the darling delicious sins. Power to live a righteous life like that of Christ. And he said, And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This power is granted to us on condition, though, friends. We must give our will to Jesus or we will not receive the Holy Spirit who gives the power to be obedient to his every word, to serve him. out of a heart of love. We must be born again or we will always fall prey to the devil's temptations. So let us submit ourselves to God, friends, today. And with joyful hearts proclaim, thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much for your holy word, the promises it contains for us, and the power that is inherent in the word. We wish that word to be in our hearts and our minds. We wish Jesus, who is the word, to be alive in our hearts and minds and to show us how to love one another as he loves us. Lord, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with each and every one of us, that we may rebuke the devil with an it is written. We need to have the word in our minds. So may we study to show ourselves approved. We thank you so much for bringing this joy to us and this hope of salvation. We thank you so much for Jesus. We ask these favors in his blessed name, for he's so worthy. Amen.